People who are confident in their beliefs do not censor others. We don't want to censor others. They welcome free, fair, and open debate, and that's what we're demanding. Under the policy I am announcing today, federal agencies will use their authority under various grant-making programs to ensure that public universities protect the First Amendment and First Amendment rights of their students or risk losing billions and billions of dollars of federal taxpayer dollars. What is happening? I've spent half a century watching people say things in Washington, D.C. I've got to say, those are some of the dumbest words to ever tumble out of a politician's (laughs) mouth. How people feel is not a concern for the Democratic Party right now. They want their power back now and forever. And that's why you're hearing calls to abolish the Electoral College. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So before my guest comes into the studio, he is the great David Enrich of The New York Times, I have a story to tell. It's about a book I fact-checked in 1997 by Michael Corda about prostate cancer called Man to Man. I know this sounds inauspicious, but bear with me. Michael Corda is an ex-publishing magnate who was kind of an alpha male, self-styled ladies' man in New York in the 70s and 80s when Trump was kind of on the scene, too. Michael is a bit Austin Powers-ish, and it is well worth looking him up, Michael Corda, to see his awesome tinted glasses and his grin and his groovy babiness. But Corda unlike Trump, is kind of ironic about the Austin Powers pose, and he writes extremely well. For context, his books in the 80s were called Male Chauvinism and How It Works at Home and in the Office. And in 1972, I think he wrote Power, How to Get It, How to Use It, and Success! One of the things he advises doing in Power is if you're at lunch with someone and you're trying to dominate them, Move the things associated with you, like your spoon and teacup and salt shakers, closer to the other person to literally dominate their space. And when I sat down for lunch with him as a fact checker and I was going to learn what the job entailed, I just wanted to like take my plate of spaghetti meatballs and dump it in my own lap and save him the trouble. <laughs> anyway... I'm realizing that I'd probably think Michael Corda was a total D-bag if I met him now, but at the time, he seemed kind of fun, like a sort of 70s has-been. So I learned a lesson from the prostate cancer book, and only because of Michael's self-awareness. Essentially, the book Man to Man is about Michael's search for treatment for his cancer, which landed him with two choices from the 90s prostate cancer treatment plan. There was radiation on the one hand and a nerve-sparing prostatectomy on the other hand. So Corda goes on and on in the book about his penis and his potency, and then he meets with the radiation person. The radiation person, doctor, gives him tons of data on how well radiation would work for him. And he's pretty much sold. There's an incredibly high chance that a little bit of radiation will take care of this for him. But he gives into some social pressure and visits this big swinging prostate surgeon at Johns Hopkins named Patrick Walsh to hear another treatment plan. So Walsh, Alpha Doctor sat Corda, alpha male, down and talked to him man to man. That's why the book's called Man to Man. Walsh blustered and bloviated and talked about how great and potent Corda's penis was going to be if Dr. Walsh got his hands on it. How radical, nerve-sparing prostatectomy, I don't know why I remember that phrase, would make Corda's penis better than it had ever been. Did it, do you have any numbers? Corda asked meekly. Numbers are for girls said Walsh. 
Horta, in his excitement about male chauvinism and, of course, his penis, knowing well that radiation was the better path for him, then signed up immediately and went under the knife with Walsh that afternoon. The lesson, as we talk about why in the hell Deutsche Bank loaned money to Donald Trump when he was the worst bet ever and defaulted on every loan he ever took out, it's worth realizing that Donald Trump likes to try to convince people that facts are for girls and that you can trust him solely because he's a bully and yelling at you and you'll ignore all the red flags and numbers because he's going to strong arm you into cutting your penis off. Anyway, as my guest David Enrich will explain, that strategy, that man-to-man strategy, works over and over again. Over the last 20 years, when Trump's been going to Deutsche Bank and getting the bankers to ignore the numbers and sign on with him. And Deutsche Bank is now in recovery from serious injuries to their vitals. Why did Deutsche Bank sign on with Trump? This is the mystery David and I are going to explore. And I'll be back with him in the studio in just a minute. John McCain, I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which as president, I had to approve. I don't care about this. I didn't get thank you. That's okay. We sent him on the way, but I wasn't a fan of John McCain. Brian, thank you again for trusting us at Johnston Funeral Home for all the needs of your grandmother's funeral. Just to go over what we've decided here, we are going to go with the cremation. Okay. The wake will start at 11 a.m. Yeah. On Saturday, followed by a brief religious ceremony and a brunch. Okay. You said you are expecting between 40 and 60 people, which is wonderful. We can accommodate that here. One final question for you. How would you like to thank the president? Uh, of what? Of the United States. How would you like to thank him for allowing your grandmother's funeral on Saturday? I mean, he doesn't have anything to do with this, so I Yeah, wasn't... that doesn't matter. He is expecting a thank you for any and all funerals that happen while he is in office. So I just need to find out how you want to deliver that thank you. It can be tweet, can be a video, can be a personal letter. I just have to let the White House know how you will be reaching out. You know, my grandmother wasn't very political, but she didn't like the president. Nobody does, but he is expecting it. Yeah, I, I think I'm not going to do that. Okay, it's your funeral. David, thanks so much for coming into the Trumpcast studio. My pleasure. You are, I think, the top obsessive about Deutsche Bank, although I'm trying to keep up with you. Yeah, you're a close second. (laughs) Tell me, you have this book coming out in 2020. Yep. And it seems to me to be the definitive history of Deutsche Bank also and Donald Trump. Yeah, I hope so. It is going to tell the full story of Donald Trump and Deutsche Bank, and you can go find it on Amazon and HarperCollins' website and my Twitter feed if you really (laughs) want to pre-order it. I think pre-orders are definitely in order because this is an incredible, we'd call it a subplot just because we have so many other plots, but it's plot caliber. The financial dealings and misdealings of Donald Trump, the Russian money laundering, the loan shopping and structuring loans in dubious ways, the multiple defaults, it's all here. So let's dig into it. Great. You've done a beautiful job of setting the table for the book in a recent article in The New York Times about Trump's shady relationship and yet quite lucrative relationship with Deutsche Bank. Walk us through these two decades that they've had this affair. So the story starts in the late 90s, and Donald Trump at that time is a casino magnet, but he's down on his luck. He has recently defaulted on a number of loans. He's left this just trail of destruction in his wake on Wall Street where 
a number of big household name banks like Citibank, among others, have been burned with hundreds of millions of dollars of losses. He has nowhere else to turn other than his dad. And so he's looking for financial support from big banks. And Deutsche Bank, at the same time, happens to have these this vision of being a huge competitor on Wall Street. So it, at that same time, is starting to build up an investment banking operation, both in London and in the United States. And part of that for them is getting big into the commercial real estate business because they want to get into this business that's booming at the time of packaging commercial real estate loans into bonds, which they can then sell to investors all I mean, over the what, world. What could go wrong with something like that? That's, I think we should get in on that. It, you know, at the time, <laughs> it made a lot of sense, and it was very, very profitable. And But the way Deutsche Bank saw, the angle it saw for itself was that, you know, no one had heard of Deutsche Bank in the U.S. No one even knew how to pronounce the name. Mm-hmm. And so what they needed to do was find clients that were kind of on the fringes of banking, people mm-hmm. that were not easily banked by other mainstream institutions. Mm-hmm. And so they needed that meant essentially taking risks that other banks were not interested in taking. And so one day in 1998, a broker comes along to Deutsche Bank and says, hey, I've got a client, Donald Trump. Would you be interested in making a loan to him? Mm-hmm. And Trump had bought recently the Art Deco Tower at 40 Wall Street, and it was in need of basically gut renovations. Mm-hmm. And Trump comes in to Deutsche Bank, makes a pitch, and they do the loan. It's a $125 million loan. And Trump was thrilled. He had found his bank on Wall Street. And all of a sudden, he goes from being a pariah on Wall Street to being to having this inside track. And Deutsche Bank is thrilled because it's found its inside track in America. And this is a guy who is, at the time at least, he was a celebrity. Mm-hmm. So this is someone that Deutsche Bank can A, make money off of, and B, show off for other clients. And it's basically, he can be a promoter of Deutsche Bank in the United States. And so from there, they're mm-hmm. off to the races. And for the next five or six years, Deutsche Bank makes several hundred million dollars of additional loans It does an enormous offering of junk bonds, which are bonds that are at higher risk of default and therefore pay higher interest rates. And Mm -hmm. he has to push the bank salesman so hard to get this done that he offers them all a trip to Mar-a-Lago if they're successful. Mm -hmm. And this is working pretty well until the end of 2004 when Trump stops paying back those bonds. So he defaults on the bonds. All of a sudden, Deutsche Bank has a problem on its hands because their big customer, the guy who they've really gotten to bed with at this point, has defaulted. Mm -hmm. That arm of Deutsche Bank that had sold those bonds, it loses money. Its customers lose money. It's really embarrassing. And they say, that's it. We're not doing business with Donald Trump anymore. Mm -hmm. He just willfully defaulted on us. He screwed us, basically. And we're not going to do business with people like that. The guys in that division of the investment bank, which I talked to, said that they didn't consider it their duty or even a good idea to tell other parts of the bank that they had had that experience or that that had been their decision to essentially excommunicate Trump. And so Trump, within months of this, is back at the bank's offices and pitches one of his biggest loans yet, which was to finance the construction of a huge high-rise in Chicago. This is the $640 million loan that you discuss in here. Yep. They made this loan in 2005, right? right? A year after this default you're talking about. So why didn't they feel some kind of duty to warn this one investment division at the bank? Why didn't they feel a duty to warn this other investment division? The way they tell this story now is that that was just the way Deutsche Bank worked. You weren't supposed to bother other parts of the bank with your dirty laundry. Right. You were just supposed to keep to yourself do your thing, let other people make their own money. And this this reflected the culture of the bank at the time, which was that there was this intense pressure to make money quickly at all costs. And asking questions about how you're making money 
or throwing up roadblocks to other parts of the bank making money, that was seen as not being a team player. And Mm -hmm. it, it was fine to take shortcuts. It was fine to push the envelope. What was not fine was slowing down this profit machine. Mm-hmm. And so it was much easier and a much more collegial thing to do, I think, at the time to just, you know, we our group has made a decision we're never going to touch Donald Trump mm-hmm. again, but why get in the way of another part of the bank? Even though they're in the same building mm-hmm. and they're all obviously reporting up to the same people in Germany, they could make a decision on their own to not do business, but why get in the way of another part of the bank doing it? I'm glad you bring up Deutschland itself because Deutsche Bank, unlike... Bank of America and some of the retail banks that we learned more about after the 2008 collapse has always seemed like, I don't know, like a Swiss bank, one of those banks in like the born identity or something, just a real solid place where they're not screwing around with the prime mortgage stuff and they're not hustling in Florida like the pictures in the big short or whatever. And they don't care about trips to Mar-a-Lago to sell junk bonds. It seems like somehow Germans are meant to be bound by European ethics and also mathematics. Well, (laughs) I mean, I hear what you're saying, but keep in mind, this is a bank that played a leading role in financing the Holocaust. And it paid for the construction of Auschwitz. It paid for the gas that was used at Auschwitz. Its CEO at the time was on the board of the company that was manufacturing the chemicals used in the gas chambers. And since then, it's a company that while, yes, being very German and participating in the reconstruction of Europe after the war, has been at the leading edge of just about every financial scandal in the world. Deutsche Bank is a company that has been kind of a proud flag bearer of criminality and misconduct in the banking industry and of out-of-control risk-taking. I mean, they have, over the years, there has been one case after another where they have gotten in way over their heads, where their executives, their senior executives, in fact, have been accused of have been charged with crimes. Mm -hmm. So it's an institution that is, I think, notorious for pushing too hard and not having really any ethical compass. I should know this, but was it founded in the days of the rise of the Nazi party? No, was it was it... founded in 1870, okay. which was kind of the rise of the industrial era in mm-hmm. Germany and much of the world. And it played a leading role in hyperinflation, Weimar. Well, or... even before that, I mean, it's the Siemens, the giant electric company that was they were involved in the founding of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank played a leading role in the construction of railroads all over the world, Mm -hmm. including in the United States, in the electric industry. GE was financed in part by Deutsche Bank Uh at the time. But yeah, when the Nazis came to power, I've gone through all of their like annual reports going back to 1870. And you see all of a sudden in, I guess, the early 30s, the Deutsche Bank logo disappears in the annual reports and is replaced by swastikas. And you can see in their annual meetings, they started having kind of parades of all their SS members up to the stage. So this is a, in in fairness, there are a lot of big, proud German companies that did this. And after the war, (laughs) yeah, and some Americans, but this was part of like the Nazi military machine. They went, the bank expanded all over Europe as the Nazis laid waste to Europe and participated in the Aryanization of companies. They helped the Nazis after they took gold out of Jews' teeth, melt it down and sell it to raise hard currency for the Nazis. So it's not like they were kind of involved in the periphery. They were the Holocaust would have happened without mm-hmm. Deutsche Bank, but Deutsche Bank definitely improved the efficiency and ruthlessness of the Nazis. I could keep going on about the I Nazis, but say, let's... I actually don't want to dodge it completely because we do get to the point where Trump's demagogy is also not a red flag for them. Yep. And Trump is, if not a fascist, fascist curious, fascist identified by many of us. And so it may not be an accident. There's actually a better historical precedent for this than the Nazis. There is a yeah. very shortly after the their founding, they got in 
with a guy who I'm fascinated with. His name is Henry Villard, mm-hmm. who was he's best known now as kind of this grand American railroad baron. But in reality, he was a huckster and mm-hmm. he went to America. He was a German immigrant into America and he took Deutsche Bank for everything it was worth. He was a very smooth operator. He was great at drumming up publicity for himself. Mm-hmm. He did photo ops and he lured the bank's CEO at the time into he who was just so fascinated by America and wanted to make a splash in America, got him over and over again, even after multiple defaults, got him to keep shoveling money in his direction. And it's and this is, you know, over a century before Donald Trump comes onto mm-hmm. the scene, but it's it's eerie how similar those two wow. examples are. And that's another German American, yeah, like Trump. Right. So, I mean, is there a possible like they have some kind of German diaspora? I know that the Heinz family, which is yep. from the Trumps' hometown in Germany. The Heinz family and the Trump family are the pride of that region, right? So they think of themselves as having spawned great American industrialist builders and so forth. There's a great nugget that's going to be in my book, and I'll spoil it right now. Yeah. So Deutsche Bank now in the U.S. is headquartered at 60 Wall Street. At the very beginning of the 20th century, 60 Wall Street was home to another building. It was kind of a landmark tower at the time. And on the ground floor of that building, an immigrant set up a barber shop. And that immigrant was Donald Trump's grandfather. Oh. And so the place where Donald Trump went for all his loans was the location of his grandfather's old barber shop and kind of where he had actually made huh. his first money. Huh. Yes, this is the guy who he was too weak for military service yeah. and then trained as a barber in Germany yep. and then ended up running brothels and other loose stuff in the Yukon, right? Went into the sin business just like Trump. Tell me about the two other loans because we're getting up to yeah. 2008 and the next default. You were talking about the 640 Yeah, so they loan. do the big Chicago loan, mm-hmm. which, again, there are all these red flags accompanying it. Senior executives who were looking at it saw that Trump was grossly overvaluing some of his assets. One senior executive told me who was involved in this that they had seen red flags about organized crime involvement with Trump and mm-hmm. suggested strongly that they steer clear of the guy. And yet it was too lucrative to pass up. One of the people who pushed through the loan was... Of course, Justin Kennedy, Mm -hmm. who is the son of the Supreme Court justice, who would sometimes swing by the Deutsche Bank offices to talk with Justin's colleagues. And it loan goes through. And less than three years later, 2008, financial crisis hits. Trump stops paying back the loan. And instead of doing what normal people or institutions do in that situation, which is kind of try to work out a solution, he instead sues Deutsche Bank, claims that it helped cause the financial crisis, which is what is making it hard for Trump to keep up with his payments, claims that the bank engaged in predatory lending against Donald Trump, mm. sues for $3 billion, and Deutsche Bank countersues, and this is tied up in court for the next couple of years. And eventually in 2010, they reach a settlement which entails, it requires Trump to pay back within two years, so by 2012, Mm. most of what he owes. But at that point, the bank is just completely done with this guy. There's no way they're going to touch him. And so Trump is faced, by 2011, faced with this problem of, A, he owes tens of millions of dollars to Deutsche Bank that he's contractually obligated to come up with Mm -hmm. and will lose in court if he doesn't. And B, he has all these other ambitions. He wants to buy golf courses. He wants to build hotels. Where is he going to get money Mm -hmm. for that? No other bank will touch him. And so it just so happens that his daughter, Ivanka, had recently married Jared Kushner. Mm -hmm. And Jared, it turns out, had a longtime relationship with a private banker, so someone who caters to ultra-wealthy families, Mm -hmm. whose name was Rosemary Vrablick. And Mm -hmm. she had been a Bank of America for many years and had just recently been hired by Deutsche Bank to help build out their private banking business. So Jared introduces Rosemary Vrablick 
to Donald and Ivanka. And Trump, at their first meeting, mentions this dilemma he has, which is that he owes a bunch of money and has these big ambitions and has no sorts of cash. Mm -hmm. Rosemary, from my understanding, hears that and is pumped because this is an opportunity for her to make a big splash at Deutsche Bank. Mm -hmm. And so she says yes. And what ensues, and her bosses support her and her boss's bosses support her. And there's a lot of opposition from elsewhere in the bank because uh, this is now going to be. Right now they are sharing information. They are sharing information. And this is something that they're going to, this part of the bank has to initiate a relationship. So it has to go through all sorts of kind of committees and approvals and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And a huge fight erupts within the bank, which ultimately is settled when the CEO of the bank, Joseph Ackerman, comes in and says, I back the private bank. They need to grow. Donald Trump is okay as a client. What prompted him to do that? And then I want you to tell me the Ackerman story. What prompted Ackerman to do that? Yeah. That's a good question. Ackerman, by the way, tells me that he doesn't remember doing that. He says that if he did remember doing it, and if it did happen, he would have approved it because it was a good commercial risk for them to take. Hmm. The old OJ, if I did it thing. Exactly. That's what we call in the newspaper business a (laughs) non-denial denial. Right. What made him do it? His argument, I think, is that the private bank was a growth area for mm-hmm. Deutsche Bank. Mm-hmm. They were doing a good business of making money off lending. Mm-hmm. And one of the secrets of that business is that you make a big loan to Donald Trump. Donald Trump then agrees to put tens of millions of dollars in cash in a brokerage account or some other yes, account at Deutsche right. Bank, charges right. fees on that. So it's profitable. With the benefit of hindsight, here's what we know about Joe Ackerman. And he was a guy who, for 10 years as CEO of Deutsche Bank, two of his biggest priorities were A, making the bank much more profitable, Mm -hmm. and B, getting into Russia. And he built a Russian investment bank. Mm -hmm. He helped a Russian government-owned bank build a Russian investment bank. Mm -hmm. He developed very close ties with Vladimir Putin. And he was a huge champion of the Russia business. He would go there and be interviewed by all these Russian magazines and all these fawning profiles of him would be written. And so now, you know, fast forward to 2016 when Trump gets elected and the Russian government interfered in the presidential election here. Mm -hmm. And it becomes very hard to ignore the fact that a lot of these loans from Deutsche Bank to Donald Trump took place at the exact same time that Deutsche Bank was cozying up with the Kremlin. Here's something I don't entirely understand. I thought that even a greedy bank, a very greedy bank that wants to move quickly, would have someone who managed actuarial tables in-house that would just say, like all the other banks had said, except, you know, the Kazakhstan Bank of Popsicles or whatever, that this guy was too much of a risk. The prestige you get from Donald Trump and even the fees that he'll pay on his account seems as nothing compared to his history of bankruptcies and defaulting. So there are two ways to look at it. The first way, and this is what people currently and formally at the bank say is what happened. They say, look, we found a way after the 2008 debacle, we found a way to lend to this guy in a safe manner. One that if he, he, first of all, that he won't default. And second, if he did default, we have a way, we have recourse basically to all his money. And so there's very limited risk to Deutsche Bank. And I think there's some validity to that. The other way to look at this is that this is the latest example of Deutsche Bank doing things that are just seem to any rational outside observer completely illogical mm-hmm. and reckless. And I think there's some truth to that, too. A third way to look at it, which is kind of a corollary to the second, is that this looks 
to an untrained eye, reckless and illogical, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's not so reckless and illogical. Maybe the risks that Deutsche Bank appears to be taking on these loans to Donald Trump aren't quite as risky as they seem. And one of the rumors that has circulated for years now is that part of the reason they weren't as risky as they seem is that Russian banks or Russian financial institutions of other sorts, or even just very rich Russians, were somehow using Deutsche Bank to get money to Donald Trump and or were protecting Deutsche Bank against losses on loans if right. they made the loans to Donald Trump. And I should say, just to be 100% clear, I've spent a tremendous amount of time over the past year investigating this and interviewing dozens and dozens of people who are directly involved in this. And they all tell me that is, to their knowledge, that is not true, hmm. that Russia had nothing to do with the Donald Trump relationship. And I have not found any proof to the contrary, not a, not a shred of proof. And I think I would have found proof if it was true. But I unfortunately do not have subpoena power. Yes. I really wish I did, yep. but I don't. We're going to do a handwritten letter like in crayon to, yeah, to yes. together. To, to demand Adam documents from Deutsche Bank. <laughs> yes. And we'll see how they respond to that. Yeah. But look, this is one of the things, and I realize we're kind of fast forwarding in this narrative, yeah. but there's this is the thing that this is the holy grail of the Deutsche Bank Trump investigations that are now being conducted by two congressional committees and by the New York Attorney General. There's, Mm -hmm. among other things, they want to see if Deutsche Bank is the vehicle through which the Kremlin got money into the pockets of Donald Trump. And I have no idea what they're going to find. I have not found anything. No other journalist has found anything either. And God knows there are a lot of us who have been looking at not only the New York Times, but the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, all over the place, the Washington Post. But none of us have subpoena power. And these congressional committees do. And the New York Attorney General does. And the subpoenas are coming. It's also possible, and I don't want this to reflect my bias, but having had Bill Browder on the show a lot of times, people who've been in the banking world close to the Kremlin, sometimes when there's torque on certain kinds of financial behavior that just doesn't look like it makes sense, that wouldn't stack up with the insurance people, it doesn't look like a good decision, there can be bribes and blackmails and that shadowy, illegitimate economy that lives between Kazakhstan, say, and Swiss banks and Goldman Sachs. Yeah, look, and that's totally true. And anyone who dismisses that as just outlandish and out of hand and impossible doesn't know what they're talking about because it is possible and it's not outlandish. We've seen this happen a million times. And and just look no further than Goldman's involvement with this huge scandal in Malaysia right now. This stuff does happen. People do get bribed and pay bribes. Well-established, supposedly ethical banks do commit crimes, flagrant Mm -hmm. crimes. We just don't know. And Deutsche Bank has. Deutsche Bank has a well-established pattern over the past decade of institutionally and on an individual level committing crimes, manipulating markets, evading taxes, violating sanctions, laundering money, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's not impossible at all that Deutsche Bank has committed other crimes. On the other hand, we don't know. It's dangerous to speculate in this way without being really crystal clear Mm -hmm. that we do not know. And I don't have any evidence. And if I was writing right now the definitive history or explanation on this, Mm -hmm. I would not conclude that there is any connection between Donald Trump, Deutsche Bank and Russia. All right. I don't want to leave it there, though, which is but we're not saying there isn't a connection. <laughs> so I want to end that. I don't um, know is the bottom line. Right, you I, don't, we don't know. I'm agnostic. OK, so 2016, the board of directors at Deutsche Bank commissions a report trying to answer this question. How did the bank become so enmeshed, as you put it, with Trump? Tell me about the report. So this was panic engulfs Deutsche Bank when Trump gets elected. It's they they did not think it was going to happen. I mean, no one thought it was going to happen. And they re- woke up and realized they had a huge 
kind of nausea-inducing problem on their hands. So the board investigates this and interviews everyone and looks at all the internal documents, and they reach a few conclusions. The first is that there had been, within the private bank, so this is Rosemary Vravlik's division, executives there had been kind of enamored of Donald Trump, and they'd been so determined to win these marquee clients and get these splashy deals done that it kind of blinded them to the risks. And to the extent that they had been focused on risks, they'd been focused almost entirely on financial risks mm-hmm. as opposed to reputational ones. So even if Trump was a good credit risk, which he clearly was not, mm-hmm. there are hu- other huge red flags waving, namely that Trump at that time had become a racial demagogue. Mm-hmm. And he was a leading proponent of the birther lie. He's doing a brisk business of spreading garbage about Ebola and using it as a an argument for why Africans should not be allowed into the United States. Mm -hmm. He was engaging in all sorts of misogynistic just nonsense. And this is for most banks, that's not the type of client you're going to do business with, even if they are a good credit risk, which he was not. Mm -hmm. The other thing the board finds is that there had been all of these reports drawn up internally at the bank that flagged the fact that they were getting deeper and deeper in bed financially with this one person. And while that's not off limits or not forbidden by any means, these are called exposure reports. And their entire purpose is to make sure that people up and down the food chain are fully aware of exactly how deep this relationship is going. Mm -hmm. And the board found that those had not been circulated at a wide level at all. And to the extent that they had been, no one had paid any attention to them Mm -hmm. right up to the top of the bank. So the most generous explanation of all of this for Deutsche Bank is that they were being completely mismanaged in a kind of not only neglectful way, but a reckless way, a negligent way, mm-hmm. and that they were so amoral about who their customers were mm-hmm. that they would do business with someone who, again, putting aside all financial considerations, was not the type of client that any other bank on Wall Street would touch. Mm -hmm. We always hear that that's what drove him to the stands and shady places and wanting, of course, to build in Moscow. But here we are with a European bank willing to take the risk. And that's one that, as I say, it sits so interestingly between these two worlds because it is sort of laundered itself. I know there are people squeamish about using it because of its Nazi history, but they seem to have kind of repaired that briefly. And now Mm -hmm. they're in with Trump. Was it at all the background with the Nazis that made it wary of getting behind another demagogue? No, I don't think it was the Nazi stuff. I think those memories internally, at least, had faded to a certain extent. I think it was just after the financial crisis in particular, when Deutsche Bank had a pretty good financial crisis, actually, because it was the one, to use jargon, shorting the American housing market. And so it made quite a bit of money on the collapse of the housing market Uh in the U.S. And most banks didn't do well during the financial crisis. And one of their big lessons was that there are problems, even if a transaction makes you money in the short term, you need to be thinking about the reputational blowback you're going to get for doing... Goldman Sachs is a great example. It became known as the vampire squid, not because it was losing money in transactions, but exactly for the opposite reason, which was that it was making so much money and kind of profiting off of its clients and being kind of amoral and unethical in how it was interacting with them. And um, kind of a movement, I would say, swept Wall Street, which is that we need to very carefully scrutinize big transactions we're doing and big clients that we have to make sure that our association with them is not going to reflect poorly on our institution. And you look at all of the banks that were most tarnished during the financial crisis, like mm-hmm. Goldman, Bank of America, Citigroup, JP Morgan to an extent, 
And they all became just so much more careful about this kind of stuff. And Deutsche Bank didn't. It, it didn't change at all. One of the things your book promises, your publisher promises, is the story of a mysterious suicide. It's not just a banking book, listeners. Tell me about the suicide. Yeah, so one of the narrative spines of this book involves a guy named Bill Brokesmith, who was one of the senior risk executives at Deutsche Bank. He was known as the person who would take an honest look at transactions and vet whether they were good or not. And not just financially good, but ethically good, culturally good. And he was American. He lived in London. And on uh, a Sunday morning in January of 2014, he was found hanging in his apartment in London. And I think nine days after his body was found, I got in touch with his son, who is a guy named Val, who is a musician and no experience in finance. But Val had something that turned out to be very valuable, which is that his father, Bill, had been using Yahoo and Gmail accounts for all of his Deutsche Bank work or for much of his Deutsche Bank work. And so Val now obtained access to thousands and thousands and thousands of internal Deutsche Bank emails and documents, which he started sharing with me. And so the story is, in part, the tale of how Bill Brokesmith rose up through Deutsche Bank and kind of helped steer it with mm -hmm. mixed results, honestly. And then following his mysterious suicide, Val's quest to figure out why his father killed himself. And it's a wild story. And Val is a just a fascinating character with all sorts of baggage and damage. And the answer, Val's quest does get answered. And the way in which it gets answered sheds an enormous amount of light on not just Deutsche Bank in general and all of its cultural problems, but on this very specific culture of trying to cover things up, being just completely negligent in how it manages risks, mm -hmm. and being completely out of control when it comes to managing sensitive accounts and handling financial issues. When I think about Trump conning Deutsche Bank with some kind of even vague presentation. I mean, I, I somehow doubt that he and Michael Cohen or whoever managed to gin up even a cursory PowerPoint. He probably just tried to intimidate bankers. Into, I don't know. I don't it's know not what quite, he did. Let, let, me, let me just tell you, though, the nexus of the Brooksmith stuff and with Trump, Trump because all of Trump's loans went through a very specific legal entity in the United States. And it was called Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas, okay. DBTCA. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of the Wild West for Deutsche Bank. This is in, just basically a holding company mm -hmm. where a lot of their garbage was stashed. Mm -hmm. And this is where their Russian money laundering trades went through. Mm -hmm. When they were doing tax evasion trades for the big American hedge fund Renaissance Technologies, this is where it happened. And it, this is also where the Donald Trump loans were. And in 2012... Right around the time that Rosemary Vrablic is reinitiating this Trump relationship with the bank, Bill Brooksmith gets appointed to the board of DBTCA. So most of his work for the bank over the next two years until he died was serving as kind of the financial overseer of DBTCA, which, mm -hmm. again, is this squirrely legal entity. But it's the one where all the Trump business was going on. And so the files and emails that Val has obtained access to are I'll just I don't want to kind of give away the story in the ending, mm -hmm. but I'll just say they are enormously enlightening about what was going on inside this seemingly irrelevant little legal unit. How does that turn into emotional problems for for Brooks? Val has this 
long, sad, complicated, angry history with his family and is, you know, grapples with his father's death in weird ways that bring up lots of issues from Mm -hmm. his past. So this is told the Val and Bill part of the story is these are humans. And I think you can understand the story of Deutsche Bank a lot better through understanding some of the humans involved and some of the tragic consequences for those humans. I mean, the reason I agree that they're integrated with each other is that, and maybe you'll think that this is too far afield, but this admission scandal that just keeps bearing fruit, food for thought at least, suggests that there's just such a high level of fraud among not just the super rich, but the rich and up, right? Mm -hmm. And the consequences of that for families, I mean, maybe this is too drawn out, but people kept saying that these kids that photoshopped and cheated their way into these colleges are left with this crazy legacy that they don't belong there Mm -hmm. at all. I have a copy of the Theory of the Leisure class, the Veblen book, like an old paperback that I just glanced the other day. And I thought, why wasn't leisure enough for these people? Like, why did they also have to simulate achievement? Yep. You know, so like Trump simulates achievement everywhere he goes when he should have just been the heir that he was meant to be. He'd have more money if he had just kept Mm -hmm. his dad's money and let it grow. And he would be the silly piece of fluff he is. But instead, he had to seem like a, quote, builder and play a builder on television the way that some of these kids played water polo players or sailors or high SAT kids. And then they live with that crushing fraud. And I know for some people, they seem to be able to power through it like Trump. Others fall apart like Michael Cohen under pressure. So what might be done with Deutsche Bank? What might be done about money laundering? We've talked to Adam Davidson on the show about this. It seems like we're going to be in a long and not all that fun period of reform where it's going to be still harder to get loans, hopefully, and also fewer maybe cash purchases through shell Mm -hmm. companies of real estate in New York. Do you think I'm dreaming too big? Yep, I do. I think... (laughs) Too much to ask. Yeah, it's too much to ask. Not that you shouldn't dream big, but that (laughs) there is, certainly right now, the notion of having a big crackdown on money laundering or shell companies or anything like that, that just does not seem to be where the, at least the federal government's priorities lie right now. And we are seeing kind of an emboldened wave of state regulators and state prosecutors we're going after this stuff. But I mean, it's piecemeal. And Mm -hmm. what we've seen historically is that the pendulum swings back and forth a little bit, but it's not actually swinging in that wide a range. I would be very surprised if we see kind of a huge moment of reform. The example I like to give when, and this isn't specific to money laundering, it is specific to Deutsche Bank and going back to the history lesson about World War II. After the war, Deutsche Bank was accused and its leaders were accused of being war criminals because of the role they played with the Nazis. And the American military, which was kind of dealing with Berlin post-war, came up with a recommendation, which is that Deutsche Bank should be liquidated. Mm -hmm. Instead, what happened, because everyone else, the British in particular, had a very strong financial interest in the bank being preserved so Mm -hmm. that Germany could repay its World War I debts, it got broken Mm -hmm. up briefly and then reunited within 10 years. And by the time that Eisenhower's second inauguration rolled around, the bank CEO, who was a convicted war criminal, mm-hmm. was invited to attend the inaugural. So he was completely reformed. I think it's an interesting lesson because mm-hmm. right now, Deutsche Bank in particular is in an enormous amount of trouble. Yet the solution that's being discussed in Germany right now is not dissolving Deutsche Bank or having the government take it over. It's merging it with another big, very troubled German bank mm-hmm. and creating an even bigger German bank that is going to be under intense pressure to find a way to make money and to increase their profits 
And we all know where that story leads. The cycle repeats itself with bank under pressure to make money quickly, to turn itself around, leads to incentives for employees to cut corners, take shortcuts, and push the envelope. Okay, I don't like that lesson. Can I refuse to learn that lesson? We all refuse to learn the lesson. (laughs) That's right. And that's the problem. Maybe Harris Buttigieg with A.G. Barrara will set us straight in the United States anyway. Preet, certainly, I have a tremendous amount of respect for A.G. Barrara. Yeah. But certainly his record as a U.S. attorney for Southern District of New York did not inspire much confidence that he will go after the big fish and really hold top people accountable. He went after, did a very good job of going after low-level and mid-level people and doing things like insider trading without holding anyone really accountable for the financial crisis. Thank you so much for being here. That's a dark note to end on, but we we have to end somewhere. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure. That's it for today's show. Say hello on Twitter and tell us what you think. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus. Today is the day. It's a mere $35 for the first year. That's pennies, hey pennies, lotties a day. And it gets you all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, comes with surprising perks, and supports our work in these uh, weird times. So go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. I just felt like doing vocal fry. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. Steve Waltine and Kate James performed today's sketch. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.